Hello and welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you so much for joining me once again as I talk to an incredible expert about all the amazing things that they know that I don't know, that you might not know. Both of our minds are going to get blown together and we are going to have so much fun doing it. Now, I want to remind everybody, first of all, that I am on tour. If you live in Raleigh, North Carolina, well, come and see me next weekend from the 17th through the 19th of November. I'm at Good Nights Comedy Club. I would love to see you there. Tickets are available at adamconover.net. And of course, if you want to support this show, if you want to listen to this show ad-free, then head to our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash adamconover, and you can get every episode with no ads. You can join our community Discord. We would love to have you there. Please come join us just five bucks a month. Now let's talk about this week's episode. You know, it's funny, we've done a lot of episodes of this show over the years, a few hundred in fact, and yet we have done zero episodes that are about the continent of Africa. Zero. That's kind of weird when you think about it because, you know, Africa, first of all, is a wildly interesting place with tons of fascinating stories, but it is also a place with over a billion people, 2,000 languages, 54 different countries, and 20% of all the land on Earth. So the fact that it's been left out of the show thus far is, uh, I'm going to say it's pretty egregious. I mean, this place is the literal, actual birthplace of all humanity, and yet a lot of us in the media, including myself, tend to give it short shrift. Let me give you an example. If you were to ask an average American about where the most violent ongoing conflict on Earth is right now, they'd probably say the war in Ukraine, right? Because that is the war that has been uh, filling our television sets endlessly for the last nearly a year. But that would be wrong. The most violent conflict on Earth right now has been the civil war in Ethiopia. Half a million people have been killed in fighting between the Ethiopian government and forces from the Tigray region. But, you know, that doesn't get coverage on the news, and as a result, almost none of us even know about it. And when Africa does get covered here, American and European media tends to put it in a nebulous, otherized background. You know, it's diminished as being a place of poverty, uh, with wonderful animals, wonderful wildlife, but with no economy that's constantly politically unstable. It's like this very specific, narrow view of an entire continent that, again, is made up of more than a billion people, 54 countries, and many, many different kinds of ways of life. This tendency to diminish and dismiss Africa is part of a legacy that stretches back from slavery to colonialism. It's an artifact of the many negative things that Western countries have frankly done to populations in Africa, and we perpetuate them when we continue to tell those stories in such a narrow way. So today, we are going to try to get past that legacy and fill in some of our own blind spots and learn something about this incredible part of the world that we have never covered on the show before. I am intensely curious about it, and I hope you are too, and if you are, you're going to love this episode. Our guest today is incredible. His name is Deepo Fallian, and he's the author of Africa is Not a Country, Breaking Stereotypes of Modern Africa. Please welcome Deepo Fallian. Deepo, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you today. So you have a new book out called Africa is Not a Country. Uh, I'm really excited to talk to you about the continent of Africa. I often mm-hmm. start my interviews by asking what the biggest misconception is about the subject matter. I think in this case, though, it's right in the title of your book, that Africa is not a country. But can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think if you ask most people to close their eyes and picture Africa, they'll think of two things, either poverty or safari. Um, with nothing in between. Um, You know, they imagine that most of us kind of sit around, um, you know, around small huts, um, waiting for the West to deliver another aid package. Um, Or they imagine that, you know, we all grew up with lions and tigers in our our backyards. Um, And unfortunately, that's a myth that has endured now for generations and generations. You know, I've been, I've been talking to, to school kids, um, as, as part of uh, the book release and and hearing them kind of 
uh, repeat many of the stereotypes that uh, so many generations of people have grown up with um, can be incredibly disheartening. Um, and so the aim of Africa is not a country is to push back against those harmful stereotypes, to tell a more real and comprehensive story of the continent, um, one that uh, shows a region of 54 countries, 1.4 billion people, and over 2,000 languages um, amounts to a lot more than just, you know, poverty or safari. Yeah, 1.4 billion people is an enormous number. That's a huge portion of the world's population, uh, and that's a huge number of of nations and ethnic groups and and mm -hmm. cultures. Uh, so how um, how do you even start covering such breadth in the book? Yeah, so the book goes from um, it, it sort of switches between uh, the historical context, so how we got to where we are today in terms of modern Africa. Um, the important thing to remember is that. Um, Africa is largely, as we know it today, by the design of colonialists um, mm. who came in um, to a land that they didn't really know. All they knew was that it was full of incredible natural resources. Um, and they they plundered and they took um, and they designed all these borders in these modern countries. Um, and that context is often missing. Um, the chaos that was caused and the pain and destruction that was caused by colonialism um, and the damage that that did uh, isn't isn't taught in many schools and isn't isn't something that most people understand. You know, if you ask um, if you ask most people about you know what the Berlin Conference was and and how that was was put together, uh, they sort of you know look at you sort of blankly. Um, and so you know that the book goes from the creation of modern Africa and the creation of this myth um, around Africa being a region of just poverty and and uncivilized people um, who have no ability to look after themselves. Um, and, and goes through sort of how each individual country was formed, um, but also how this myth has endured, um, and largely through popular culture, um, through films and in books, um, and through charity campaigns. So that's really where, you know, the, 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 the book kind of switches between, um, you know, what happened historically and how a lot of that myth is maintained today. Yeah, well, let's tell some of that story. I mean, you, you talk about the Berlin Conference in the book. You just mentioned it. What was the Berlin Conference and what effect did it have? Yeah, so in 1884, the, the main colonial powers met in Berlin um, to discuss their plans to colonize Africa. Each individual country had sent, you know, explorers into the region who had discovered a truly wonderful land, a place of incredible natural resources, of developed communities, of... Um, technologically advanced people. Um, and they wanted, plainly speaking, they wanted that for themselves. Um, now, their greatest fear wasn't for the lives and livelihoods of the Africans who actually lived there. Um, they were worried that if they simply just went into the land, um, that they would start a war with each other, you know, fighting for fighting for scraps of someone else's, of someone else's land. Um, so they decided to meet in Berlin. Um, no representatives of, from Africa were there, obviously. Um, and they decided to hash out a plan and set some ground rules as to how the colonization of the continent would actually happen. Um, and wow. the first thing they had to do was come up with a story because as it is today, it was then, you know, it was illegal to do this. You, you couldn't just go and steal someone else's land. Um, so they agreed on this myth and they would repeat this myth time and time again. And the myth was that Africa was a place of, of savages, of uncivilized people who couldn't look after themselves, um, who needed uh, the West to come in and rescue them with what they referred to as the three C's, which was Christianity, commerce, and civilization. Um, mm. This was all agreed upon um, by these Western powers. And, you know, that would be their justification for doing something that was illegal by international standards back in 1884. Um, and so that was the beginning of, of, of this myth that is endured up until today. And the second thing they had to do was come up with an actual strategy. You know, how would they actually go in there and take land without getting into wars with each other? And so they came up um, with uh, a procedure that basically meant that you had to prove that you had um, conquered a piece of land and show that to the, the rest of the colonial powers. And you know, as we know now today, you know, much of that conquering was do it was done by force. Um, yeah. And and that's where the, the 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 stealing of the land and the creation of these modern countries um, that were created against the will of Africans began. When you say, I mean, 
there's there's so much there. Uh, when you say this happened in 1884, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, that this that's relatively recent. <laughs> that's less than 150 yeah. years ago that this happened. Um, and obviously, Africa had thousands and thousands of years of history before that, but also hundreds of years of European exploitation. I mean, the slave trade began when mm-hmm. the the 15th, the 16th century, somewhere around yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, what was different about this moment in the late 19th century from all those you know previous centuries of of exploitation by European powers? You had a point where I think, firstly, the development of of weapons that would make it easier for them to colonize the the region. I think previously they felt like they didn't have enough of an understanding of different regions um, to colonize it successfully. But you got to the point where a number of these uh, colonial powers had developed pretty sophisticated um, weapons and artillery that they felt like they felt pretty confident that the local population mm. would not be able to stand up against them. Um, and, and and that was really, you know, probably the biggest catalyst that came, um, you know, a, a, around sort of uh, 1870s, 1880s. The exploration had become more um, more free-flowing. So instead of kind of, you know, people had... had traded with very, very specific regions for a long time, but there was more curiosity as to what else is there in this land that we've we've never been to before. And that curiosity led to new discoveries, and that new discoveries um, led to people deciding that, you know, they wanted to wanted to take it for themselves. Um, and that was really uh, what sparked the interest among a number of these colonial powers. And by colonial powers, you know, we mean the UK, France, Belgium, Spain, Italy. Um, interestingly, the U.S. was also invited to the Berlin Conference, but um, showing surprising restraint, the U.S. said, this doesn't seem quite right, um, <laughs> and, and bowed out. Um, which wow, the really, first and last time that's ever happened. Which, which, which really kind of goes against um, the U.S.'s track record on these, on these sort of things. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, it was, it was, it was something that... Um, they they felt more confident than ever that they could they could pull this off, um, and 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 they very much did. This also seems like a very advanced form of colonialism. That you know maybe a couple centuries prior they're fighting each other at you know the French and the Spanish are fighting each other at sea or whatever over trading routes. But at this point they've been yeah. doing this long enough where they're like, hey guys, let's not have a war. Let's just divvy this up. Like we know we can go in and take this, and exactly. so no no need to fi- fight among amongst each other, boys. Let's go. Yeah. Uh, let, let's let's do this in a civilized way. Uh, exactly. So they started what just carving up the continent, and and this what created the the nations that we see today. Exactly that. Um, they turned up. I mean, you know, many of these, many of the leading representatives of these uh, Euro- largely European nations would actually never themselves go to Africa. They um, they sent explorers into the region. They hired local. Um, local companies, local companies run by you know Brits and 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 Belgians and 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 the French uh, people who had sort of set up camp there um, to do a lot of that work for them. Um, but you know a lot of that was incredibly rough, not really thought through. Um, that you had people kind of just saying, "Oh, one border starts around where I'm standing now and goes about fifty miles that way," and they'd call the French and say, "Is it okay if we come about fifty miles that way?" And the French would say, "Yeah, that sounds about right." And then wow. we'll go another 100 miles west. And and if you look at a map of Africa, you you can see that work. You know, uh, it's just straight lines, lots and lots yeah. of straight lines. About 30% of all African borders are just straight lines. Um, and that carved up and split about 10% of all ethnic groups. So consistently across the continent, you have um, people who speak the same languages, have the same traditions, um, have the same histories split between countries. Um, they... In the case of the British, they created a system uh, called divide and rule, um, and they created these comically large countries, um, which had a multitude of different ethnic groups who mm. spoke a multitude of different languages. Um, so, for example, Nigeria, where my family is from, you have you know well over two hundred, three hundred, four hundred languages in this one country, um, and they did that specifically to make it harder for you know, local populations to come together and fight off and, and organize. And, and so this, this was, this was, this was really organized work. Um, and the aim wasn't, you know, to create countries that could be successful in the future. The aim was to deliberately instill chaos 
um, to make it hard for them to fight back while they plundered this land and while they while they ensured that they could take from it whatever they could. Right. They're not trying to set up a country that's that's set up for success in the long term. They're trying to set up a client state that they can extract as much resources as possible from. And so there's an incentive then to create a state that is unstable because, hey, it's made up of groups that have their own history and their own history is maybe not friendly with each other, at least not cooperative. And and uh, uh, that's uh, that's diabolical to do that. Yeah, exactly. Um, these countries were built to fail. Um, and it, it's something that, you know, when, when people talk about uh, African countries and they talk about, um, you know, oh, you know, why are some countries not as economically developed or politically developed? And why, you know, does there seem to be all this conflict? That side of the story is never discussed. It's, it's the, the realities of what was created during, during colonialism and and the deliberate chaos that was introduced to what was a region that had, you know, prior to that, everything and every, anything, you know, it had large, successful, advanced kingdoms, it had smaller nomadic tribes, it had, um, you know, rural areas, urban areas, everything that exists everywhere else in the world. Um, and it was thriving, and, and the European powers recognized that it was thriving and said, you know, we'll go take some of that for ourselves and introduced this chaos. Um, but the reality of that introduction isn't something that is acknowledged. And so instead that um, the myth of, you know, Africa is a land of uncivilized people, um, of people who can't look after themselves, um, yeah. of people who need uh, saving by the West has endured up until today. I actually want to ask you a lot more about what Africa was like pre-colonialism, but we have to take a really quick break. We'll be right back with more Depot Fallian. Okay, we're back with Deepo Fallian talking about Africa. Um, so you just said right before the break, it was so intriguing to me that, you know, before these colonial powers came in, before the Berlin Conference, that Africa was a continent that had so many different types of civilizations that were thriving. Um, I, I just wondered if you could tell us, give us a little bit of that picture uh, in terms of what it, you know, what it looked like and, and uh, what, what was happening there before all of this interference from colonial powers. Yeah, one of the things that I really enjoyed um, about the process of research in this book is reading about, um, you know, many of these, uh, many of the regions and what existed before colonialism in, in these incredible kingdoms. You have, um, uh, you have accounts from, we talked earlier about, uh, you know, uh, like European missions that had come to do trading around the region and, and they went back and they wrote about, you know, the communities that they interacted with and traded with and they wrote about, you know, incredibly advanced um, kingdoms that, um, you know, both technologically, but mathematically, um, culturally, um, you had the Kingdom of Benin, for example, the large West African kingdom that were home to these incredible artifacts, um, which we now know as the Benin Bronzes, um, which... Um, oh, these are just know, in the news no, because there were some, there's, some of these artifacts are finally being returned. Is that right? Yes. So uh, in, I think it's the, um, uh, a couple of museums in New York have decided to return um, about 30 Benin bronzes. The vast majority of Benin bronzes have since been uh, stolen from the continent and taken abroad, um, but there's still thousands of them around the world. The British Museum alone has about 900 of them. Wow. Um, 800 of them are in permanent storage. Um, and, you know, this, and just sitting in a warehouse somewhere just, in England. Just sitting in a warehouse, um, wow. ne they never see the light of day. Um, only a hundred of them are ever on display, um, and you know we, we we continue to refuse to to the the UK continues to refuse to want to return that return them, um, and we see that replicated all around uh, the world. And and so you know it, it was it was acknowledged by these European uh, nations just the richness of African societies and and communities. Um, you know, watching there's the woman king out the moment, which speaks of the Dahomey warriors, um, this incredible all-female all militia um, that existed um, in around sort of Western Central Africa, um, that were just this incredible force um, that no real other society has ever created before and since that. Mm. Um, just this uh, awesome 
not just uh, not just militia in terms of fighting wars, but you know they had such a huge role um, politically in organizing their organizing these communities and the respect that they um, the respect that they were given just around the society. These stories have been lost, um, and they were lost, you know, partly through the destruction of colonialism, um, but through this enduring myth that has survived until today about about Africa. You know, when you believe. Africa and this this re entire region to be nothing but full of um, you know people in poverty um, sitting around you know you lose that curiosity to want to learn more about you know what what's what what's the history of this region what what incredible things have they created and what do, incredible things do they continue to create um, and so it, it's it it's it's so you know great that. You know, you've asked about, you know, what was it like before colonialism? You know, what, what was lost um, by uh, by this organized um, rampage and this organized plunder of this region? Yeah, it's, you know, the more I think about it, the more I realize how deeply my impressions of Africa are shaped by, you know, the, this history, the history of colonialism and the way it's been presented to me. You know, I think about going to uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City um, in my 20s and going and looking at, well, there's a huge Egyptian art section there and it's usually mobbed with people. There's also just like one wing for like the rest of Africa <laughs> because, yeah. because yeah. Egypt is, first of all, not really usually presented to Americans as being part of Africa. It's like its own little thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah but yeah. then also I remember the... The, you know, the African art section being uh, kind of empty, like not a lot of people going through it. And I remember having the experience going, oh, my God, there's amazing things in this wing. Like I was mm -hmm. I was sort of blown away by it. Um, and, you know, quite likely I'm looking at artifacts which should not be in New York at all. They should be mm -hmm. back in Africa. But, you know, I still had a, a powerful experience with them. And, yeah, for sure. you know, the, the two different. So what is the difference there between Egypt and the rest of Africa It's well? In what the the early twentieth century Egyptian artifacts were like paraded around, uh, you know, mm -hmm. the North America and Europe, um, and made famous, uh, mm -hmm. while the rest of you know these these other civilizations weren't um, in this sort of like bizarre. Uh, I, I don't know. Like I, I I couldn't speak to the historical reasons for why one civilization yeah. was paraded around, the other one wasn't. But like our my own impressions of the entire continent are so shaped by that history of what became famous in uh, North America and what didn't um, and, and how those things are valued. So, sorry, please go, please you jump in. No, certainly I think you've, you've made a really good point there. Um, and often that comes from the fact that, you know, historically um, Egyptian cultures have been able to parade their own artifacts around the world and show the world and tell their own story. Mm. Um, what has been lost by the continued uh, hoarding of these artifacts is the uh, inability for most African countries to tell their own stories to the world. And so, as you described it, it's the same here in the British Museum. Um, there is a section of the museum that's just labeled Africa. Um, and in it, you have all these artifacts just molded in one um, in one exhibition. Um, and they tell such incredible stories, but they are not told on the terms of the African countries in which they belong to. And, you know, the the, the push to have these artifacts restituted back to where they belong isn't to take them away from the West. Um, you know, as I mentioned, the British Museum only ever has on display a hundred Benin bronzes. These Benin bronzes come from, you know, West Africa, the, the region that we kind of now know is, is Nigeria. Um, and Nigeria said, oh yeah, you can keep the hundred you have on display. Um, you know, if you want to, if you want to return the, the 800 that you don't seem to want anything to do with, then, you know, that would be, that would be great. And they'd love to be able to to go on their own terms and say, "Hey, th this is our, this this is our heritage. This is what we've created. Um, this is what we continue to create." You know, to be able to tell your own story is so incredibly powerful, and and it's yeah. how you know we reach we reach people. Um, there are, and when we think about it in so many different ways, not just through artifacts, but through in popular culture. Um, there are so many people around the world who, you know, know what it's like, or think they know what it's like to uh, to go to school in an American high school because we've watched films about American high schools all our lives and we've listened to songs about it and we've read books about it and and you know America's able to go and tell their own stories yeah. you know about life in New York City and in LA and 
um, in rural areas, you know, and, and, and the ability to do that is so essential. But that ability has been taken away from African countries, um, even though ever since colonialism, you know, they've been saying this is wrong. This is this has been, you know, it's it's been an ongoing battle. And, and, and as you rightly pointed out, it hasn't really been that long in terms of a time frame. You know, it's been yeah. this continued thing, but it but it's been incredibly it's been an incredibly powerful tool um, in terms of uh, being able to push a narrative that absolves um, many European colonial empires from the responsibility that they have in effectively destroying a region um, and forcing them um, to rebuild from the ruins that they created. Um, that chaos in, endured right up until the independence era and when these countries were able to eventually get their independence, um, they had to reckon with the chaos that had been caused. They had to, you know, look around at countries that had, you know, for decades before, you had ethnic groups that had been deliberately pitted against other ethnic groups by colonial leaders. You had these large countries of so many different languages, so many different traditions and histories, and suddenly you're one country and you're told, right, how do we... How do we build in the national identity? How do we build new traditions? Um, yeah. How do we how do we start from scratch? And this is the 1960s. You know, my parents are older than the country they were born in. Um, this isn't a long time ago. It's literally 60 years from start effectively starting a brand new country while the world is moving on culturally and technologically and other countries have had a huge head start. And the irony is that many European countries, especially who had caused this damage, you know, in the years after colonial, in the after independence, um, when you know countries initially kind of you know struggled to come to terms with the realities of these of these countries, and you know you had ethnic tensions and civil wars. You know, many of these European countries then took that as an opportunity to point to these African countries and see and say, "Oh, see, you know, they would be better off if we were still in charge." Um, you know, right. completely ignoring that they were the ones that caused the chaos in the first place, and <laughs> and had introduced it, it. It's this. It's this revolving. It's this constant kind of, uh, you know, uh, never-ending cycle. And so, you know, the aim of my book is to try and end end that cycle now, and to not have more generations growing up believing this myth. Yeah, I mean, God, what a what a perverse thing to do to go into a place and a place that is working pretty well or at least there's a lot yeah. of happy people there's a lot of civilizations there thriving and to go kick down everybody's sandcastles and plunder it and take it for yourself and then when you're finally ejected to say oh look at this poor part of the world see they can't actually manage their own affairs oh too bad they kicked us all out right <laughs> they'd be better yeah, exactly. if we were there what yeah, a biz- you know. bizarre it, it it it's something that it it and it's all the history's there. It's it it's not you know it's not it's not hidden in, um, you know it's, it's not buried away somewhere. It, it's all there, but because you know the colonialists pushed this message and pushed it and pushed it, um, and 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 banned a lot of this from being taught in schools. Um, you know much of this still in in countries across Europe isn't taught. Um, and and a lot has been lost because of that. Um, and yeah. it, it's 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 you know the the this this book isn't about you know African history. This history is the history of Europe. It's the history of the U.S. Um, because you know much of you have a lot of people across the U.S. who are part of the African diaspora um, who have lost the ability to connect with specific countries um, because of the flattening of this entire region because. The idea that this is just one singular monolith of predetermined destinies of, of 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 pain and and poverty and strife, um, and the only goodness there comes from, um, you know, comes from safari and animals and and there were great animals by the way, it, you know, fantastic <laughs> safari. I don't yeah you know, countries that very much rely on safari. You know, I don't. There's nothing wrong with it. it I'm just saying that you know there exists anything and everything you can imagine. There are stories of great triumph. There are stories of great uh, poverty. Um, there are stories of wonderful vistas and landscapes and incredible natural resources. There are cities uh, like Lagos, where my family are from, where you know I grew up, never saw a wild animal in my life. You know that it's mm. I I did I grew up and uh, a city kid like 
kids do in London and New York and every in LA and uh, everywhere else in the world. And all these stories exist. And when you when you you learn about the diversity and the richness of this place, you 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 can only be you can only be frustrated that those stories aren't aren't told around the world and people don't have that curiosity for the specificity and the diversity that exists around this region. Yeah, the the specificity is what whenever I travel or whenever I learn about a place, that is what I always end up craving is is finding out like, okay, what is the particular political history that mm-hmm. led this place to being, you know, the way that it is. A couple of years ago, um I traveled to Hong Kong. We did a couple of episodes on this show about that place because I got really, you know, I really became fascinated by the specificity of the place and and it's the history of that one little chunk of land. I'd love to talk a little mm-hmm. bit more about um, Nigeria since that's where your family is from and, and because you touched on it before. So you said it was around the 60s when Nigeria uh, finally became an independent nation. And I'm so curious about, okay, so you've got a nation that was created by a colonial power that smushed together mm-hmm. a bunch of groups that you know, maybe by themselves would not have chosen to be, uh, have a line drawn around them. Um, Mm -hmm. but when the nation wins its independence, I mean, how, what does it look like to then say, okay, we've got to like craft a a polity, you know, a group of people who Mm -hmm. feel like they're part of a single nation. Um, that strikes me as a very complicated project when the, the line itself was drawn by the people you just kicked out that you said, get the yeah. fuck out of here. Yeah, but yeah, well, yeah. now we're stuck with the line that they drew. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, do people well, uh, tell me about the national identity of, of what it means mm-hmm. to be Nigerian today under those circumstances? How does that craft it? It's, it's an ongoing process. It's not, it's not easy. You know, it's, as, as I said, it's, it's just 60 years. Um, you, you know, in those early days, the, you still had the there are three main ethnic groups um, across the country and, and and dozens and dozens of, of smaller ethnic groups um, but the the vast majority of people are split between three ethnic groups and in those early days you know people still organized around those ethnic groups um, you know so there was there was a leader of the eastern region and the leader of the western region and a leader of the northern region and so those three you know leaders would try and come together. Um, and try and, uh, you know, start to develop a sense of what it means to be Nigerian. And, but that's, diff- that's difficult because these three ethnic groups don't speak the same languages. They don't necessarily worship the same gods. Um, their traditions and histories are just completely different. And for the decades preceding independence, the British had pitted ethnic groups against each other. They'd found the most corruptible men, often military trained men, bribed them. Um, and basically said, go and sow chaos um, on our behalf and we'll, we'll pay you. Uh, you'll become richer the more chaos you sow. Um, and so it, what you had at independence was a nation that was saying, you know, how do we, how do we, you know, how do we come together? How do we decide that we are, you know, we are one people, we are Nigerian. Um, one of the challenges after uh independence when most countries gained independence was what do we do firstly with the physical borders themselves um and so there was a meeting of you know what we now would call the african union they said you know should we just try and redraw this whole thing and and, and work it out again um and the the process of doing that is just so complicated yeah um, especially in the 1960s and there was a fear that you know the larger countries would have too much of a say um, and so they had to show restraint and say, you know, the rest of the world is moving on. If we try and redraw things now, will that take a, another hundred years to try and, you know, get everything sorted? So it was sort of decided that, you know, let's try and let's try and work with what we've got here. Um, and and Nigeria is one of those countries that, as as you know, the most populous nation in 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 Africa, wanted to kind of try and set a good example. So. Um, there were, you know, conversations about a national language, which was decided that it would be English. There was, you know, attempts to um, to create a new national anthem that people could agree upon, new traditions, new cultures. But it, it was it was tough, hard work. Um, yeah. You know, the, the 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 British had basically made having power for you and your own ethnic group the most important thing, and it's it's not right. something that's foreign to other countries as well. You know, you have a situation certainly in the UK now and you have in the US now where there is this great constant tussle for power. You know, there's you and your political group and another political group and this this, this never-ending cycle of let's try and fight for power. 
And that was the same thing, um, you know, in Nigeria at the time. But instead of, you know, two political parties, you had a multitude of ethnic groups um, with their own traditions, you know, just, just constantly tussling for power. And in those early days, that led to, you know, eventually led to a civil war um, that was, you know, incredibly brutal and tough. Um, and this is all in my parents' you know, lifetimes. And so yeah. uh, you, you have a new nation, you have attempts to set up new traditions, you have a civil war, you have the end of the war, you have attempts to, um, you know, to rehabilitate people back into that nation. Um, you have, while, while the rest of the world is moving on and, 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 and then you have, you know, post-civil wars trying to establish new forms of democracy and, and trying to work out which bit of democracy works for you. Initially, they tried, you know, more of a UK parliament system. They switched to something that looks a bit more like the American system now. Um, you're, you're, you're just trying things out based on traditions. And and it's something that, you know, the, the country is sort of finding its footing, um, certainly in terms of democratically over the last decade. Um, but again, this has been an incredibly short history. And I think when you start to for me, when you start to explain it to people in those terms, instead of seeing African countries as they are often depicted as these sort of failed states, you start to realize that actually a lot of African countries have done an incredible amount of positive work in such a short yeah. period of time to establish a new nation, to establish new traditions, to try and at least um, curtail some of those early ethnic tensions that were deliberately sewn into the nation, um, while also contributing a huge amount around the world culturally through food and fashion and um and music and film um you know you have obviously you know people from africa across the whole world um yeah. contributing in huge ways and and so you start to see it as actually this isn't a story of a failed region it's actually a story of an incredibly resilient group of people who in the face of uh or who were dealt an incredibly bad hand um, have in 60 years uh, done an incredible amount of work to find some sense of stability. Um, and it's not to say that it's only positive stories. There, there are ups, there are downs. You go two steps forward, you go 10 steps back sometimes, you know, like yeah. every other country in the world. But, you know, it, to, to have been dealt those cards um, in such a short period of time and then, you know, to find some pretty solid footing in many in many cases you know is a story of a broad success yeah uh, th th what this really makes me think about is how important those stories are you you've said story so many times <laughs> yeah. and i think about you know the american story you talked about you know we have conflict in the united states and certainly yeah. we do in the, the united states had, had a civil war as well yeah you know, <laughs> a very bloody one that killed countless people uh, but we don't, you know, take that as evidence of America's failure as a nation. Yeah, you know, it's exactly. it, like, that's part of America's great history. It's, and yeah. part of the American story is that, uh, that we are told over and over again is, oh, this is a nation created by people who, you know, got together and said, we want to create a new nation the right way. And we're all mm -hmm. sort of choosing to be here. And, uh, so there's a, there's a great positivity to the American story, Whereas if you are told instead that your story is you're a group of people who are unable to rule yourselves and mm -hmm. you know need a paternalistic intervention by a European power, mm -hmm. or if you're told that your story is, hey, you're, this is just a place that the Europeans came in and fucked up <laughs> and left you yeah. in the ashes of, and now you're stuck with the lines that they drew, that, that story isn't very useful either for putting together a... No. Yeah, coherent. But, but the story that you just told is... An incredibly uh, positive one, and, and sounds like a like it is a basis to build from. Yeah, certainly, and I think that you have, um, you know, you have the reality of what colonialism created, and then you have what these countries and 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 groups and individuals have done to try and change that narrative up, and to try and from you know the ashes create something that is 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 positive and 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 you know you, you can start to create stories and and traditions of your own which is something you know countries do consistently all the time um and you know you develop new ways of doing things and you mix some traditions um into some more um sort of you know quote unquote modern ways of, of doing things um to tell new stories and and that's one of the things that you know is incredibly exciting we see 
at the moment, um, especially, you know, through music and things like Afrobeats and I'm a Piano, you have these young musicians telling really exciting stories of these young countries, of, of a young yeah. generation who are starting new traditions and, and building new identities and, um, and, and establishing new ways of dressing and talking. And, and you know, you, you can start to sort of do all those things. Um, and that's something that, you know, I want for people to, to appreciate and recognize and see that. Um, and I, I end the book kind of talking about younger generations and young activists and um, young sort of pop culture stars who are who are telling these stories and, and starting, um, you know, when you when you have a foundation and, you know, a lot of credit goes to my, you know, my parents generation and generation before them who, you know, fought for independence and and had to deal with those difficult early years and try and come out of that. Um, and then to create that sort of foundation that you can now say, right, you know, let's, you know, what can we learn from the past and what can we build into the future? And people want to go out there and they want to tell these stories, you know, but often they are blocked um, from doing that by, um, by this narrative that, you know, Africa is only about one thing and that's pain and, and suffering yeah um you know and people want to go out there and tell the stories of their nations and what they're up to and what they're building um but you know when you have you know when when you go and you click on the africa tab on most news agencies websites it's all just stories of of destruction rather than rather than growth mm -hmm. and building um and you know that's the sort of thing that you know i and many people across the region you know really want to change yeah, I want to get into more about how narrow that narrative is, but we have to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Depot Fallion. We're back with Depot Fallion. So I want to talk about uh, how narrow our conception of the United States and, and much of Europe is about Africa, um, because as you said right before the break, when it comes up today, when you go click on the Africa tab of the newspaper, when you look at, you know, page A23 of the New York Times or wherever their their mm -hmm. one Africa story of the day might be, um, or when you look at the popular imagination, look, I'll, uh, I'll confess to this, on, you know, my show Adam Ruins Everything, we did 64, 65 episodes, I think we probably did two topics that were related mm -hmm. to Africa at all, and one was about... Uh, the, uh, the the Tom's Shoes brand and their, you know, the, mm -hmm. their, the idea that they were giving free shoes away to people who needed them in Africa. We debunked that. Mm -hmm. We also talked about uh, trophy hunting and, and misconceptions mm -hmm. around trophy hunting. Um, and I'm looking at that going, okay, I was doing my best to debunk narratives, mm -hmm. but at the same time, what are the two things I chose to talk about, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like yeah, yeah, yeah. the story of poverty and deprivation and, and, you know, what we are giving or not giving to Africa in terms of material goods and, you know, animals, right? Safari, mm -hmm. stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, even, even in my attempt to correct, I'm still falling into these, uh, you know, this very narrow picture. Uh, mm -hmm. and... I don't know where where does that come from? I mean, even after you know these colonial powers have left, um, you know we're still like trapped by these old stories. Yeah, and uh, just based on what you just said, there'll be a lot of people listening who feel like, oh, they've you know ingested many of these these myths, and perhaps they've they've pushed many of these stereotypes themselves, and. The aim isn't to make anybody feel bad about, you know, what we, we all grow up with stereotypes and, and we, you know, often it's against our, uh, we, we just we naturally see the stuff and, and it's not necessarily easy, you know, for people to, um, to, to, to see something different when that's uh, what's pushed on you. So, you know, certainly not for people to look back and feel bad. It's more kind of to look to the future and make sure that, you know, we don't keep making these same mistakes again. Um, the interesting thing, and that's a really good question about, you know, the colonialism ended, you know, you know, independence era came in the 1960s. Why didn't this all stop? And what mainly happened after that was the myth of poverty and pain and suffering created this desire, especially in the 70s and 80s, to fix Africa. Mm -hmm. And that was done by, most of the work was done by this new um, genre of celebrity-backed charity campaigns um, that found that if you uh, if you put out imagery of starving children and um, destitute mothers and um, 
villages ravaged by poverty um, and you put these really stark images out there, then you could raise a ton of money very quickly. You know, yeah. if you simply said that you can save this life for two dollars a month, um, you don't have to describe who that you know who this child is on our screens. You don't have to describe the context of this disaster or or what's happening exactly. You just need to you just need to say that oh, there is pain and suffering in Africa. You have many you know parents who you know were grown up saying to their kids or people listening would have heard you know if you don't finish your dinner, you know there are starving kids in Africa. You should finish your right. You should finish your dinner. You know, stuff like that. Just it stayed in the in the cultural bloodstream, um, and a lot of that came from these charity campaigns. Um, you know, there was there were a few very successful ones. Um, what we now know, sort of Band Aid, Comic Relief. Do they know it's Christmas? Um, right. Which is a song that's played all the time every that, December here in the UK, and it's wh- a song. What, a, what an insulting title for a song! It's, like, what? There's so much in that title. Do do they know? Do they know it, it's, yeah. First of all, do they give a shit? It's Christmas. <laughs> it's, <laughs> like, it's literally. Why should they there care? Are, there are more. I think there are more Christians in Africa than anywhere else in the world. Like they are. They are wow. certainly aware of <laughs> baby Jesus. You know that they have. They have an inkling that you know Jesus was born around December time. Um, and you, I mean, not just, uh, you, you go through the title, you get into lyrics that say that, you know, uh, there is no flowing water in Africa. The only water that exists is from people's tears. Um, lyrics that say that, you know, the only joy that they can hope for this year is to stay alive. Um, it's, it's, and it's, 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 you know, it's, it's songs that are played in bars and in clubs and in parties. And we, we, and we ingested all this stuff and, we 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 saw it as normal that that's what took the myth from and it's for different reasons you know there are wonderful people who work in development organizations and charities who 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 believe that you know this was a a, a, a ravaged region that only um you know that, that that desperately needed to be saved um and many african countries that were going through the process of developing their nations wanted people to come and visit wanted tourism industry wanted people to come and set up businesses and move their families there and and come and do what you know most countries um require when they want to build their you know nations continue to build their nations is you know get people in to invest um but they found it incredibly difficult to do that um i'll give you you know one example from uh in the book i talk about coney 2012 um that you know i remember coney 2012 yeah you know and it was this this incredibly slick um film that depicted uganda as a country in which a warlord was just freely roaming the streets picking children up um and the only way to save uganda wasn't to go to the ugandan government and petition them to do something about it it was to go to the u.s and the hope of the film was to raise enough awareness to make joseph coney famous that um the u.s would send troops into uganda to find Joseph Kony. Um, they left out the small detail that Joseph Kony wasn't even in Uganda, um, <laughs> that he'd been pushed out of the country due to the work of the Ugandan government and and, and uh, local activists who had who had pushed him out. They'd, they'd left all those details out, but this film became the most viral or most watched film on in YouTube history. I think in within the within a week of it coming out. And that spread around the world and the damage was done to Uganda. Uganda, in ironically, in 2012, before the film came out, had been selected by uh, the magazine Lonely Planet as one of the uh, leading tourist destinations in the world. Lonely Planet wow. recommended people should go to Uganda. And then this film came out and tourism to Uganda, as you can imagine, completely plummeted. For the first wow. time in about 10 years, there was a steady increase of tourism into Uganda and after that, it just completely plummeted. Um, wow. And they tried so hard. In, the, in, in researching this book, I didn't even realize how hard Uganda had worked to push back against this film. They had released their own film explaining the context. They'd, they, they'd, set, up, um, they'd set up these schemes in which people could learn the truth about Joseph Kony. They, they did an incredible amount of work to try and change the narrative that Kony 2012 had created. But it was, it was way too late by then. Um, and, and, you know, we, we've seen this repeated time and time again. Um, and, you know, the other big, uh, other big driver of this has been through, you know, Hollywood films and, um, mm-hmm. that continue to show, you know, 
life in Africa is just a backdrop, you know, often to, you know, to Americans who need to or looking to find love and, you know, they end up in a safari park and, you know, the yeah. local Africans might help them. It's, you know, the, the, the backdrop to uh, a sort of a, these sort of white savior narratives where someone comes in to, to save a, an overrun village again from yep. a warlord. Um, you know, people close their eyes and they, they can they can see this imagery and they can see this stuff. Um, and so, you know, from the question you asked about, you know, why did this continue? This this is exactly why it continued for different reasons than the colonialists had initially. You know, the colonialists, okay, 1884, just wanted to steal resources, you know, and that myth carried on until the 1960s. The damage they'd done created a lot of the, the struggles and those that early, you know, um, the early strife and ethnic tensions and some of that early poverty. Um, and that then pushed a further myth around, well, there is there is this region in the world that's suffering, we must save them. And because all people can picture about Africa is, you know, these tiny villages and uh, areas overrun by uh, warlords and dictators, those were the films and those were the stories that were told in books and in films and 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 that you know was what was was pushed um and so it, it, it's so multi-dimensional this yeah. this 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 myth that's been and the stereotype that's been pushed um that it's 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 a lot of work to try and say um you know let, let's 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 not do that anymore um and let's <laughs> let's try and uh let's try and and paint a more realistic picture of, of this continent it strikes me that a lot of the people you, you mentioned, the folks who made Coney 2012, uh, you know, a lot of the other folks who do development, et cetera, they're, they're often trying to help yeah. sincerely. They're trying yeah. to do a good thing. I mean, we could be a little cynical about the Coney 2012 people and say, oh, they were trying to, they were trying to get clout. They were trying to, mm -hmm. you know, or, or, you know, a foundation realizes it can make a lot of money off the backs of these images. And, and there can be a cynical degree to that. But this is also, you know, the reason people shared that video was because they were like, oh, no, this is terrible. I want to help out. The video is telling me I can help out if I share the video. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's very easy to fall into that trap without realizing that you're still, uh, you know, looking at Africa through a very narrow lens. Um, and it's difficult for us. Uh, you know, difficult for me here sitting here in Los Angeles to, to know exactly how to break out of it, you know, Um mm -hmm. Uh, I'm curious if you have uh, advice beyond reading your book on how we can, <laughs> you know, yeah. how we can, A, uh, continue to break out of that trap, get some of that specificity, understand uh, what is actually needed, and B, I mean, is is Africa a place that that could use help from folks in the United States or or from Europe? I, I, that's a very big question to yeah, yeah, actually yeah. ask at the end of the conversation. But mm -hmm. you know, when I look at, for in, let me just give you an example. Mm -hmm. We had uh, uh, about a year ago um, the the head of the organization Give Directly, which is a uh, you know charity organization that um, gives direct tr cash transfers to folks all over the world in the United mm -hmm. States as well, but they also do it in Africa. Mm -hmm. um, and I've talked to them. I think their model is pretty good. But hey, I'm not there, and and I'm again. I have my my little narrow lens. So, mm -hmm. uh, how how can we do a better job of evaluating what is helpful and and what is harmful, or or, or should we just say, hey, you know what? It's for folks other than me to decide because I'm just some white dude sitting here in L.A. You know? <laughs> yeah. No. And I'll I'll answer this, the the second part of your question first. Um, again, as I said earlier, this is a region of anything and everything. There is certainly, um, you know people who are who are struggling um who who need assistance um and who you know in some cases their government maybe has failed them or their community has failed them just like anywhere else in the world and so mm -hmm. you know it's not to say that uh the that you know there there is nothing there's nothing wrong not, no, no bad thing has ever happened here um stay out it's just to say that these instances when you look at them, you, sh you should think of them in the way you would think about them in, you know, the U.S. You know, if there's a specific crisis, there was, um, you know, uh, I think a uh, recent hurricane in Florida, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you, yes. you'd, you'd make and you talk about that specifically. There, there is there's a challenge in Florida right now due to this. And here's the context and here's what's needed. And here's the and, you know, here are organizations on the ground that are trying to help. And, you know, and we, we know of it. We, did, we didn't just say, oh, Amer the whole of America is overrun 
by natural disaster and you know everyone is suffering it's it's it get it the, the most important thing i can say is get as incredibly specific as possible and that specificity will more often than not lead you to groups on the ground who have been working for a long time in in helping um or trying to develop their either their own communities or you know communities dealing with a specific problem and so i think that specificity is always really key here you know find out about you know exactly what the the crisis is you know the, the big criticism about do they know it's christmas is that it described the whole of africa as being right. overrun by this pain and suffering and and that's incredibly unhelpful in in certain cases you know some countries might say oh we have development issues but we think we're going to solve that by this you know incredible uh tourism push that we have planned for the next five years and what we want is for people to come and visit you know and, and maybe you might think so oh, okay cool you know that sounds good let's go and visit it looks great you know uh, or it might be to you know they're looking to a specific charity is just looking to raise money to build a school or build out you know some infrastructure that has that um you know perhaps was damaged by natural resource and so i would always just say in these cases it's it's if you are of good heart and 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 mind and body and soul to try and be as specific as possible and and not to another frustration that many people have is you know you don't want to be used as as props you know and i think often the way in which these these images are shared um often these uh you know the the people in poverty are, are used as props to raise money and and people have always been comfortable with the idea of you you know you have a lot of people here who you know go on their gap years um to to say that you know they want to just go to africa to help and they'll you know go into a um perhaps maybe a homeless shelter or something and you find that very quickly they've taken photos of people and they popped it on their instagram um yeah. you know they're surrounded by happy kids and they've they've um you know of them in the middle and um and they've they've taken a selfie with them and they've just thrown it on their instagram as if it's normal you know it's the mm. sort of behavior that you would never do in a homeless shelter in la you know you wouldn't just walk yeah. in and go to someone and say can i just take your photo and then post on your instagram people or pick up a child roaming around and say and take a photo of them and and and, and post it online you know that would be seen as very strange behavior so you know it, it's often just think about you know how would you attack this problem in your own country um and then from there um you know use those same skill sets to 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 look to help where you can if you think you can um and yeah. in terms of kind of like resources as well um obviously reading my book is key um but <laughs> there are so many great writers and um you know nollywood it's a really great film industry across west africa that's the nigerian film like, industry correct? Nigerian film industry yeah um and in through uh you know that there are there are so many uh great um resources out there for for people and um i would i would just try and you know when you think about africa try and go down to what what country am i really thinking about what what region am i am i am i curious about um and i think that curiosity will, will certainly lead to um will lead to you kind of addressing it in more specific ways Deepo, thank you so much for that. Uh, that's that's a wonderful answer to my very long, complex question for the no, very end of the interview. <laughs> I really like that. Yeah. Oh, good. I'm so glad. I thought it was a wonderful note to end on. Uh, the book is called Africa is Not a Country. Um, you can get it at our special bookshop, factuallypod.com slash books, or wherever else bookshops are sold. Do you have a favorite bookshop, Deepo? Um, books are magic in Brooklyn in Cobble Hill is a really, really great bookshop. They've they've shown a lot of love. So if you are listening to this and you are in uh, Brooklyn, go to Books Are Magic. But I am happy for you, anyone to buy this book from their independent bookstore. Uh, go ahead and, and, and support local bookstores. Um, but yeah, shout out to Books Are Magic in, in Brooklyn. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here, Depot. Uh, can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a great conversation. Well, thank you once again to Depot for coming on the show. If you want to check out his book, Africa is Not a Country, head to factuallypod.com slash books. That's factuallypod.com slash books. And you'll be supporting both this show and your local bookstore when you do so. I want to thank our producer, Sam Roudman, our engineer, Kyle McGraw, and everybody who supports this show at the $15 a month level on Patreon. That's Whiskey Nerd 88, Vincente Lopez, Susan E. Fisher, Spencer Campbell, Scooper, Senor Bolsa, Sam Ogden, Samantha Schultz, Ryan Shelby, Roy Z. 
Ziegler, Rosamund Sturgis, Robin Madison, Richard Watkins, Rachel Nieto, Paul Schmidt, Paul Malk, Nuyagik Ipaluk, Nikki Batelli, Nicholas Morris, Neil Gampa, Mrs. King Coke, Mom Named Gwen, Miles Gillingsrud, Marvin Wheatshirt, Marvin Tithonium, Mark Long, Maggie Hardaway, Lisa Matulis, Lauren Sandburn, Laura Stotter Studenmund, Lacey Tiganoff, KMP, Kelly Lucas, Kelly Casey, Kelly T, Caitlin Flanagan, Caitlin Dennis, Julia Russell, Jim Shelton, Jim Myers, Horrible Reads, Hillary Wolken, Goner Maleggies, Ethan Jennings, Eben Lowe, Dude with Games, Drill Bill, Devin Kim, David Conover, my dad, thank you, Dad, David Condry, Daniel Holsey, Courtney Henderson, Chris Staley, Chris Mullins, Chase Thompson Bowe, Charles Anderson, Camus and Lego, Beth Brevik, Benjamin Rice, Benjamin Frankert, Benjamin Birdsall, Aurelio Jimenez, Ashley, Antonio LB, Anne Slagle, Alan Liska, Allison Liparado, Alexi Batalov, Akira White, Adrian, and A. Thank you to all of you. Head to patreon.com slash adamconover if you want to join them. You can find me online at adamconover.net or at adamconover wherever you get your social media. If you're in Raleigh, come see me in a couple weeks. Would love to see you there. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week on Factually. Star Bands Audio, a podcast, <clears throat> a podcast network.